You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is, how wild did the ABA-NBA bidding wars get? Hey, this is Jason, and you are listening to part three of my discussion with Rainus Lattice of the Handle Podcast about the battles off the court between the ABA and the NBA. In part one, we talked about the ABA's formation and their battles over players in the late 1960s. In the second part, we talked about uh, Spencer Haywood and his legal cases against the ABA, NBA, and college basketball establishment, and also talked about a 1970 merger agreement that ended up falling through that could have changed the course of basketball history. And in this part, we're going to talk about a lot of the uh, bidding wars over players in the early 70s, particularly a case over uh, Bob McAdoo and a secret contract. And uh, also looking at how the ABA uh, went after uh, Bill Walton. And today we are brought to you by the Nothing But Nylon podcast. You know that Nylon Calculus is the place to go for smart but accessible analysis of all things in the NBA. And now there's a new podcast called Nothing But Nylon. Hosted by Kevin Farragan, it is a place where NBA writers and researchers discuss their ideas and talk hoops and analytics in a smart way. Check out Nothing But Nylon on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast, or find it at the Step Back. So we are joined in progress in 1972 as the bidding wars over players between the ABA and the NBA is beginning to heat up. February of 1972, um, as you mentioned, Jim McDaniels, he jumped from the uh, Cougars uh, to the Asonics, the he was kind of a problem from the Cougars uh, at the beginning. Used a draft pick on him and invested some resources in him, but he was by the, by the time I think he was ready to go, even though it was only like half a season, I think they were ready for him to go because of uh, how much of a headache he had been despite um, despite his talent. And then March of 1972, um, Charlie Scott jumped um, from the Squires to the Suns, and this is quite the uh, fascinating uh, story, which really puts the craziness of the 1970s in a nutshell in, in terms of these ABA NBA battles. So this is all from Loose Balls. Uh, Charlie Scott, he's in his second season with Virginia. Um, he talks the owner of the Squires, Earl Foreman, and their coach, Al Bianchi, into meeting with North Carolina star Bob McAdoo. McAdoo ends up signing a secret contract with the Squires while at North Carolina, and there are worries that, of course, it will be found out since he was still in school, would be found ineligible if that were the case. 
So Foreman put it into a safety deposit box, kept one key, and gave the other key to Charlie. Or and gave the other key to Charlie Scott. You need both keys to open the safety deposit box. Then, as we mentioned, um, Scott jumps to Phoenix, and then Foreman says he hears talk about McAdoo wanting to play for the Olympics in 1972. Now, it's one thing, of course, to ruin you know the eligibility of a college player. It's quite another thing to ruin the eligibility of a team playing in the Olympics in 72. Um, so at this point, Foreman is feeling very nervous and realizes that he probably can't keep McAdoo because he's under 21 and because of the hiding of the contract. And at this point, McAdoo ends up being drafted by Buffalo and wants to go there. So one day, Foreman gets a call from the Buffalo Braves owner, Paul Snyder, and who says, we understand that there is a contract already signed by McAdoo. And Foreman responds, I'm not saying there is or there isn't. And then Snyder offers to settle for $200,000 when Foreman thought he would get nothing out of it. So he had actually a pretty good deal for him. So someone gets the key from Charlie Scott, and then Snyder and Foreman meet at the bank to get the contract. They get it out of the safety deposit box, go to Earl Foreman's apartment, which Julius Irving lived at, uh, I believe, during this time, actually. Um Snyder lights it with a match and then flushes it down the toilet and then gives Earl Foreman a uh, certified check, which, you know, all the secret contracts, the back table dealings, just all the craziness of the 70s in a nutshell, pretty much right there in that story. Yeah, Earl Foreman's wife was probably uh, preparing a meal for Julius as that was happening. But yes. uh, the, the the crazy part is that the 72, 73 Virginia Squires hypo- hypothetically could have had Julius Irving, George Gervin, and Bob McAdoo all, all on the same team, and yes. Charlie Scott as well. If you want to cr- right. run crazy with it, and yes. the illegitimate way that contract was signed uh, prob- probably robbed us, ro- robbed us of that trio, and it's probably robbed Foreman off of about three hundred grand when he would have sold McAdoo to a stronger ABA team come All Star time. Yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> So March of 72, the ABA filed a $300 million antitrust suit against the NBA asking for an injunction barring the player raids. Of course, you know, they've, they've just lost Charlie Scott. They've lost uh, Jim McDaniels. You know, they, they, it, both of those in the middle of the season are actually toward the end of the season, but still during the season. And uh, eventually the NBA does stop the practice of trying to sign ABA players who are under contract and in, in persuading them to jump over to the league during the uh, uh, season and you know otherwise it's pretty much the usual types of um, legal wranglings that are going on but that's probably the major change that happens there um, in uh, April of 72 the Hawks end up signing Julius Irving uh, which I guess was <laughs> the one exception to uh, well it was during the offseason but the one exception of um, this agreement is that the Hawks actually do try to sign Irving while he's under contract with the um, with the Squires, uh, as we've talked about in we, we talked about our previous Julius Irving episode, eventually, um, you know, he plays a few exhibition games with the Hawks, but eventually ends up going back to the um, the Squires. Um, in uh, June of '72, after Pittsburgh folded, John Brisker wanted to sign with Seattle. Uh, an NBA commissioner, Walter Kennedy, declared him a free agent. However, a week after the signing, Philadelphia filed formal charges claiming that Seattle's signing of Brisker violated NBA bylaws since he was still on Philadelphia's supplemental draft list from 1969. <laughs> um, and then Kennedy went on to approve um, the contract, um, and um, Philadelphia brought the signing up to the NBA Board of Governors, who ruled that Seattle had violated the league constitution. Kennedy then fines Seattle $10,000, awards their first-round draft choice to Philadelphia. 
Then a judge weighs in, ruling that Kennedy had usurped the authority of the Board of Governors. And then this ends up delaying the NBA draft for two weeks, which is amazing. The um, Board of Governors restores the pick to Seattle and then awards a bonus selection at the end of the 73 draft and offers second-round draft selections uh, from Seattle to sort of settle this dispute. But um, it's funny how Seattle is always involved in these uh, crazy things of, of trying to bring ABA players over. But just another um, – I mean, could you imagine the NBA the NBA draft being delayed two weeks uh, off – off of something like this and because of john brisker of, of all people who was a, a great player uh, uh, during his day but uh, a bit, bit of a malcontent and it's interesting how the nba sort of got burned uh, after some of these moves and charlie scott did have did have a good career but uh, between jim mcdaniels uh, john brisker and then spencer haybud they got they got a few players who uh, would get on uh, their particular coaches nerves and uh, their careers didn't really turn out uh, as good as they could have in the, in the NBA. Yeah, and you wonder if just the you know the, the pressures of some of those circumstances of the way that they, um, particularly with Haywood. I mean, he he had so much pressure on him and so much hatred toward him, and and you know, I mean, he was booed at you know all these arenas and dealt with quite a bit. I mean, you know, the other guys, I don't know if they were going to turn into much anyway, but you know, you wonder if Haywood. At a certain point, if the if the pressures of all that, you know, um, just made it harder on him to be able to, you know, realize the, you know, the the, the talent that he had. Yeah, unfortunately, he had to go through that, and uh, he did a lot for future generations to come. But it certainly affected his own career. And interestingly enough, uh, with that extra pick that that the Sixers uh, got in this whole in this whole deal. They drafted Raymond Lewis, uh, the, the streetball legend who reportedly outplayed Doug Collins and, and then their rookie camp. And yet he had a contract dispute with the team, so he never played for any NBA franchise. So that's another footnote in all of this craziness. And he actually later on tried out with, with the Utah Stars, but uh, Philadelphia, Britain, Britain Sioux. So Raymond Lewis never, never really had a pro professional basketball career. Uh, interesting. I, I That one I had, that, that's interesting. Um, so 72, um, the, the, uh, the NBA for consensus, all Americans, Bob McAdoo, Henry Bibby, Tom Riker, Jim Price, and Isaac Stallworth for the ABA, Jim Jones, uh, other notable players, uh, for the NBA, LaRue Martin, really notable for being one of the biggest busts, number one, uh, NBA picks of all time and Paul Westfall. Uh, ABA, it's George Gervin, uh, Don Busey, Brian Taylor, and James Silas. And uh, we should mention McAdoo was the first uh, underclassman drafted in the NBA. Yeah, not not to pile on uh, poor LaRue Martin, but when you look at his college uh, college achievements and then the NBA career he had, um, Kwame Brown and and, Jay, and Michael Olive Candy and, and players of that sort really don't deserve the, the criticism they get because LaRue Martin really had a poor career for for the pick with which he was selected yes. by Portland. Yeah, and, and he was regarded, you know, seemingly a nice guy and a guy who didn't really unfortunately for him, you know, was had that he didn't ask to be picked first, but unfortunately, yeah, really one of the uh the up until more modern times was you know, absolutely the the typified being a number 1 pick who was a bust. Um, so in 1972, the Senate Judiciary Committee agrees to a merger bill, and there's some pretty crazy, um, uh, I mean, some, some some good things and also some pretty crazy um, 
attributes to this. Uh, it would do away with the reserve clause, but there was several amendments to build. No entry fee for ABA clubs. A guaranteed 30% of the home gate to visiting teams. Um, all players should be signed to one-year contracts with an option for a second year. And my favorite one, a prohibition of television of Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday night games during the high school and college basketball season. Yeah, that, that's an odd selection of, of uh, amendments that had to be there. I, I wonder about the, the one-year contracts. I guess it would allow for freer player movement, but that that's a, also seems like a odd particularity to have yeah i i don't know if that was just more of like if that was a, a um setting it up for this is the first step in a new system then you're you can have long-term contracts after that but it was sort of getting everyone out of you know maybe contracts they didn't want to be in and and settling it there yeah that that, that was a little bit confusing to me but um but but yeah that, that that's an that's an interesting one as well yeah, I guess so. That 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 would make more that would make more sense than just one year contracts uh, till the, till infinity from now on. Right. Yeah. That that I can't. Yeah, obviously, the the league would not have gone for that. Um, it, it, not the other things as well. Um, October nineteen seventy two, Rick Barry forced to go to Golden State as we talked about before after he had um played a couple seasons with the Nets but had signed that Warriors contract previously and was was held to it. Uh, he, he th- theoretically, I guess, could have sat out for another year and then played with the uh, Nets. Um, but he, at this point, he was felt he was too old to sit out another year and was, you know, was fine with going with, with the Warriors. You know, he he had wanted to go back there as well. Although I think the the Nets the, at the point were was his preference. And then Irving forced to go back to Virginia, as we mentioned. Um, I, this one I found interesting, and I, I couldn't find anything more about it, but November 1972, the ABA negotiated with the Philadelphia Spectrum to put to play a new team there. So it would have been really interesting to see a Philadelphia ABA team playing in the same arena as the uh, 76ers. Um, you know, that that would be, have certainly been an odd situation. Yeah, and uh, I do believe that uh, it would be the year during which uh, the 76ers won only nine games, which, which used to be the record for the poorest uh, win percentage so the the aba team which would have been there might have had a shot at at being being the premier team in town yeah certainly they would have yeah certainly they would have been a better uh they, they could not have been a worse <laughs> on the on the court uh product but um so 1973, in February, a New Jersey group agrees to buy the Chaparrales and turn them into the Jersey Giants, but the deal uh, ended up falling through. Interesting, the, they were going to try, you know, these. I guess with the Philly team and the Jersey team, are attempts to put teams into the Northeast, which of course had traditionally been the NBA's domain. In uh, March of 73, a federal judge um, rules against the ABA's trademark claim of a red, white, and blue ball found that the coloring of the individual panels of the basketball was not sufficiently distinctive to be the subject of a statutory trademark. So that was that that was addressed in loose balls a bit of you know whether it was the fact that they couldn't get their act together or you know the fact that you know they just couldn't trademark the actual colors of the ball. But that was certainly you know if they had been able to many be in charge of manufacturing the initial red white and blue balls and been able to get money from that rather than everyone you know they got some money from it but anyone who wanted to could um make that ball that obviously may have changed the aba's uh financial um situation given the number of red white and blue balls that were uh that were sold during that time 
and and 1973 is a point where some of the franchises are are beginning to fall off uh, and in nearly two years uh the two of them wouldn't, wouldn't finish the season and then baltimore and uh I, i'm blanking on the other one so yeah the the owners could could have really used a positive push like that at this point also march of 73 um senator um birch bay from indiana introduced introduced a bill that would al- allow a merger and do away with the uniform players contract and the option clause but this alternative proved unpopular with the owners um the 1973, uh, or I, I'm sorry, May of 1973, uh, the third uh, planned ABA NBA All Star game would be canceled. Uh, so they had planned to do a. Th- we mentioned the first two. They in our previous episode, they they planned a third one and actually even planned ones in the future, but it never came off of after the uh, first two. So uh, the 1973 drafts, the of the consensus All Americans, the NBA got D- Doug Collins. Ernie DiGregorio, Kermit Washington, and Jim Brewer. The ABA got Bo Lamar, Larry Finch, and Kevin Joyce. Um, other notable players, uh, the NBA didn't really have anyone uh, particularly notable outside of the All-Americans. And the ABA had Mike Green, who was number four in the NBA draft, uh, Larry Keenan, Caldwell Jones, uh, Sven Nader, and ML Carr. Uh, this one's pretty close. There weren't really, you know, none of these players are particularly, uh, you know, superstars in this case. Uh, Di Gregorio, um, his career, he was at least looking at, in terms of fame, was looking like he would be a superstar. He's in a lot of ads uh, during that time and was a very popular college player early in his pro career. But unfortunately, injuries uh, kept him from realizing his potential and making him retire very young. But, uh, you know, everyone else kind of, you know, some good players here, but not really after the strong early 70s drafts was sort of a flat year for the the draft. A lot lot of injuries fell, you know, limited careers of these guys. Yeah, the, the NBA probably won this one initially, but uh, both Doc Collins's and, and, as you said, Ernie DiGregorio's uh, careers were uh, cut short by injuries. Uh, and uh, in a way, as as was Kermit Washington's, he, he did put together a, a, a few solid years. And uh, I think he might have been an all-star one year. But yeah, when when you hear his name, you you initially, you always think of the punch. And uh, that that's the connotation his name has, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, uh, July of 73, Walter Kennedy announces his retirement effective June of 1975. Uh, sort of a lot made of Walter Kennedy not necessarily being the strongest uh, commissioner um, ever. I mean, he was only the, I believe he was the second commissioner in NBA history. Almost every commissioner has had quite a uh, long term, but um, he was sort of considered uh, wishy-washy, I guess, is the uh, the best term in terms of uh not really, you know, taking strong stands and not really, really being able to, you know, control a lot of things that were going on in the league. And certainly this is somewhat of a period of, um, you know, obviously there's tremendous change in the league, but there's also, you know, kind of settling into some stagnation in terms of, you know, the the business of the NBA isn't necessarily growing as fast as, um, you know, the expectations had been, you know, in the late 60s and early in the 70s. And he, the the big the big uh, mistake he made, uh, b- besides uh, uh, seemingly losing to the, to the ABA and a, a lot of these wars, I don't know if any other commissioner would would have uh, done better. But uh, go, going to NBA to CBS in, in the place of NBA on NBC really really made the NBA fall back in regards to its uh, TV coverage because uh, 
uh, the the ABC station made sure that uh, they would uh, present American football uh, when, whenever bas- whenever NBA basketball was on, and I think they used some marketing techniques of, of putting college football and and at the same time time slots as the NBA would. So that move really cost cost the NBA several years of progress. Uh, in 1980, as as we all know, they still were uh, broadcasting the the Lakers Sixers finals on tape delay. Yeah, the the CBS deal. Even though the CBS was a more prestigious station at the time, the um, yeah, the ABC had you know, stronger marketing and um, was you know willing to kind of. It was more of an afterthought on CBS. It was a much smaller fish in a bigger pond, where it was a bigger fish in the smaller pond. That was that was ABC. Uh, September of '73, Will Chamberlain signs with the uh, with, with the Conquistadors uh, initially to be player coach but unfortunately for him the uh, a federal court rules he can't play so he only coaches uh rich and i went through that in a previous episode uh january of 74 the 1971 merger agreement uh lapses so they're they're no longer have that that three-year window um the aba revived its antitrust suit again uh, seeking 100 million dollars in damages against the nba the NBA Board of Governors responds by voting 18 and 0 against any merger with the ABA. So the the rhetoric heats up again. Um, I think we may have talked about where uh, Mike Storin, um, uh, the who's the commissioner at this point, is uh, you know giving a lot of quotes to the press about how you know the ABA has all these plans to um, you know go after the NBA and they're going to go after stronger talent and so on and so forth. Um, I think that was mostly him blowing smoke, but he was effective in that role of being you know, kind of a spokesman advocate uh, for the league and you know, gave them better leadership than they had maybe had over the past you know, couple of years. Yeah, so certainly a, a better commissioning ten- tenure than Walter Kennedy had. So uh, speaking of which, April of 1974, there are... Uh, Bill Walton is heading into the um, NBA. He would be he would be drafted in '74, and there are a lot of ABA attempts to woo him. There were even some attempts previously in '73 by the San Diego Q's owner Leonard Bloom, who was um, trying to woo Walton as a hardship case, which is funny given that uh, Walton you know came from a you know came from a middle class background and. Um, uh, you know, it was kind of pointed out, like, I don't know if Walton's family is really that hard up for money. And uh, Bloom's quote is, how many of these guys have been out and out hardship cases in the past? Hardship is however you want to define it. So basically openly admitting that hardship is, you know, a uh, not a real thing. But there was talk of ABA attempting to organize a Los Angeles team with Walton playing there, Jerry West as coach. Um, also, um, I forget who tells the story in Loose Balls, but there's basically a story of Walton when he met with the ABA saying like, you know, he wants to be the highest paid player, but he wants to be on a team that's already has established stars and doesn't want to be responsible for winning, which the, you know, he was sort of like, wait a minute, you want to be the highest paid player, but you don't want to be responsible for winning. Uh, Walton himself said he thought the quality of the ABA play just wasn't good enough. He wouldn't be challenged there. And he said that they tried to use the weather of Portland against him. So it's a very different story based on who you ask about Walton uh, and the ABA and their negotiations for him. But that was definitely a very, they were very aggressive about trying to do that, you know, seeing him as somebody who could make a difference in terms of, uh, you know, giving the league some needed attention. Yeah, one one has to wonder how uh, things would have turned out differently if, if the ABA would have gotten either Bill Walton or, or uh, 
Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who were the two generational bigs of, of that decade. Uh, someone like Artis Gilmar, of course, was a, was a great player, a nice player, but both Walton and uh, Jabbar proved that uh, they can build a team to a title by 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 not by themselves, but by le- leading a, a decent group of guys. So the ABA never really got that uh, generational big type player. They mostly had the very good uh, wing players. So yeah, that that would have been a di- different. Uh, situation with uh, Walton playing for a LA, LA Bruins team. Yeah. And, and I mean, the other thing with Walton and, um, and Kareem, of course, is just, they, they would come in with this, you know, established pedigree of, you know, being part of UCLA and that would have, you know, that they were stars. I mean, Artis Gilmore was a great player in the ABA, absolutely tremendous, you know, player, but he didn't, you know, he came from a you know relatively small college and, you know, wasn't as, as well known and, you know, was dynamic in his own way, but he would not, he didn't bring the audience with him that, um, you know, Kareem would have, or Walton would have, of course, Walton, you know, would have dealt with the injuries where that, that, you know, would w- certainly, you know, almost certainly would have been the same issue in the ABA that it was in the NBA. So perhaps it wouldn't really have done much for the, uh, for the ABA, but, um, you know, Kareem, that, that's another one that that's obviously a very fascinating uh, question. And I, I think it was really would have made it some difference, but, um, you know, he was also a guy who had an adversarial relationship with the, with the uh, press and maybe wasn't quite, uh, you know, the, the box office attraction that he, you know, theoretically should have been. But, um, but you know, obviously interesting to think about. Um, May of 74, Billy Cunningham returns to the NBA. So another established NBA star uh, who heads back to the NBA after an ABA stint. Most of the major stars, as we mentioned, did the same thing. Uh, Jim Jones, who was one of the first underclassmen to leave early for the, the pros in 72, um, there's a famous Al McGuire quote where he said, I've looked in his refrigerator and in mine, mine was full. His was empty was one of the justifications for, um, feeling like Jones was justified in going, um, Al McGuire, as you mentioned, very progressive in that, uh, sense, as opposed to many other college coaches. Uh, in this case, he leaves the ABA for the NBA, um, going from the, um, Cougars to the Cavs via the Lakers who had his, um, draft rights. And Pete Newell, uh, who was the Lakers GM at the time, said that, that he it was the only ABA NBA three way trade ever, and made Jones the only player to ever jump leagues to the lawsuit. So I uh, I found that uh, idea amusing because I think that is I'm not sure about the only three way trade ever, but it was definitely the uh, almost certainly the only player to jump leagues to the lawsuit. Yeah, and uh, Lewis Balls has uh, actually quite a long monologue by. Jim Jones. I'm not. I'm not sure how the interview went. The interview process between him and, and Terry Pluto, but he described in detail his his uh, his time in Marquette and uh, basically growing up in, in poor conditions and how he struggled in, initially in the ABA because he was not ready for the professional world of basketball. So yeah, that that's definitely an interesting account in regards to all of the things. Uh, uh, mentioned here whether it was him leaving college early or, or uh, ending up in the nba in, in a way that didn't involve a lawsuit so that, that was a uh, one of the many interesting stories from the loose balls that made make it a absolutely fantastic book on basketball history all right this is the end of part three of our conversation stay tuned for the final part where we will uh, talk about george mcginnis leaving for the nba David Thompson heading to the ABA and the ABA almost breaking apart. And then finally the, uh, the merger between the two leagues. So 
Uh, you should check out um, Rainus's stuff at lamarmatic.com. He has a great podcast and a great YouTube channel, all worth checking out. And uh, you can find us at The Step Back at fansider.com. You can also find us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search for Over and Back. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.